0: Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology
1: Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. In this episode of the podcast, we want to be looking at this whole idea that God appoints people to positions of power. This is obviously a well known and popular idea which is all-pervasive throughout much of Christendom, and certainly all-pervasive through the charismatic and evangelical worlds in which I move, and most of my listeners are moving. The first thing I want to do is to reiterate once again that patriotism is a religion. It has its own holy days. It has its sacred events. It has its sacred objects. It is a structure which tells you your destiny and your purpose it tells a story about where you and your people are in this world and where they're going and where they came from patriotism is a religion which affirms who is allowed to live and who is allowed to die who is justified in killing and why patriotism is a religion which helps set the boundaries about who and what resources people can have, and who is a legitimate target for spending your resources on. Patriotism is a religion which affirms and justifies who is in and who is out, and who belongs in certain patches of land and who doesn't, and why you're allowed to keep them out. Patriotism has its own holy texts and founding documents. It refers to unseen powers which regulate and guide people's decisions. It refers to inherited traditions. It refers to ideas and movements that are bigger than any one person. In the best sociological, anthropological, or theological definitions, patriotism is a religion. And in the Christendoms that we live in, and the Christianized societies that we have, The religion of patriotism takes on the language and the forms of Christianity, but it is itself a rival to the way of Jesus, regardless of the language that is used, regardless of how well-meaning or sincere or enthusiastic or sentimental its adherents are to Jesus or the Bible or Christianity. All we have to do is make a list of the things that patriotism holds most important. And then we compare that list to the things that the followers of Jesus held or hold to be most important. This isn't rocket science. It's not actually complicated. What does your patriotic story tell you that you should do with your enemies? What does your patriotic story tell you you should do with your land? What sort of attitude Does patriotism tend to want you to have towards foreigners? How does patriotism affect your attitude towards money and saving and spending resources? What is the patriotic story when it comes to your family and traditional family values? What is the patriotic story when it comes to your authentic identity, who you are, where you came from? What is the patriotic story when it comes to your destiny? How does the story of patriotism influence the way you think about where you and your fellow countrymen are going in this world and what their job is in this world? My point is very clear. The answer that patriotism gives to all of these issues, the things that patriots say are good and that you should pursue, every single one of those things... The followers of Jesus, or Jesus himself, either said were bad, or they said they were temptations that you should avoid. Or they redefined those goods, such as family and family allegiance, to such an extent that the wider world saw the followers of Jesus as subverting and undermining the very things that they were trying to extol. And it's no different today. The problem is, is that back in the day of the New Testament, the rivals to the way of Jesus were pagan, or Roman, or Pharisaical Judaism. And so the contrast was much starker. And today, the rivals to the way of Jesus are Christian, and Christianity, and Christian nations, and Christian culture. But you strip away the veneer of language and sentiment, and underneath you are left with the very same rival religion, the religion that comes from finding your destiny and your purpose in your inherited traditions and the forms of life and land that you were born into. In other words, the religion of patriotism. And much of the New Testament is concerned with how to negotiate this space, that followers of Jesus find themselves in. And by that, I mean the space that has been defined by empires, nations, people groups, inherited traditions, ethnic identities. And these are the spaces that followers of Jesus are always coming up against. So any mention of Jew and Gentile eating together or of foreigners being healed or of Roman centurions meeting with Peter, or Jesus healing a centurion's servant. These are all striking at the heart of a perceived difference between ethnicities and patriotisms that should have been preserved. And the New Testament spends a lot of energy trying to dismantle that very same affection and allegiance that was in the hearts of its Gentile and Jewish Christians and trying to form a new people, out of these old people. Likewise, any anytime Jesus heals an impure person, he's making a statement about what was seen to bring shame onto the chosen people as a race. Every time there is an act of non-violence in the face of violent oppression, there is a statement being made about how we should hold our power and what we should do to protect our rights. In other words, followers of Jesus are not to clutch tightly to what is rightfully theirs, even when it's rightfully theirs. The book of Revelation is overtly concerned with empires and nations and the way that they rival themselves to the ways of Jesus and his people. And it's really concerned with how followers of Jesus are meant to live in this world that they find themselves, which seems to be in thrall To the higher powers and authorities and principalities, which are defined as market forces, violence, patriotism, and charismatic leaders that people are following. This language of powers and principalities also shows up, for example, in the book of Romans, where Paul refers in Romans 13, he refers to the Caesar and his government using the same language that Paul uses for powers and principalities and evil forces in Ephesians 6. And in fact, if you want to hear more about this, I devote an entire episode to, it's called Followers of the Way, it's number 8, to Romans 13, and that's worth listening to, to refresh your memory. But the headlines here I want to point out is that Paul and the earliest Christians had an imagination towards their governments and their home nations and the rival countries around them not as good things that sometimes go bad but instead they saw them as bad things that sometimes can be used for good the attitude that Paul has towards leaders for example is not one that God appoints leaders because they're so great I talk about this in the Romans 13 episode. The appointment of the sword, which is meant to control evil, is not an appointment of something that is wonderful. It's a concession to evil. And in effect, Paul is telling his followers and the followers of Jesus, don't be like them. Do not fight evil with evil. Don't live by the sword because you'll die by the sword as Jesus says. Paul in Romans 13 is saying, don't have anything to do with wrath dealing and vengeance seeking. This is for the servant to do. Caesar is the servant of God. And the servant wields the sword in order to violently kill violent people. And elsewhere, well, in Romans 12, Paul says, do not seek vengeance. And in Romans 8, he tells his followers, you are sons of God, you are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Caesar is only a servant, you are the sons. And we submit to Caesar for a time, we keep our heads down, we pay our taxes and we give him some honour, but we don't participate in the sword-wielding, wrath-dealing activities. These are things that Paul is explicitly telling his followers not to be involved in. And it's not because Caesar is so great that he gets to wield the sword. It's because Caesar, along with all the other rival factions and forces scrabbling for little scraps of power, is part of the problem. So where do we get this idea that God appoints leaders? This is a very popular idea, especially amongst Christians who are patriotic. The religion of patriotism is a rival to the way of Jesus. And when the religion of patriotism adopts Christian language and thinks of itself as Christian, we now have a deeply entrenched form of life, utterly convinced that it is Christian, when in fact, in every conceivably important point, it is opposed to the way of Jesus. It is in fact very hard to live with this type of cognitive dissonance. And one of the solutions that Christendom has found is this idea that God appoints leaders. Because the religion of patriotism holds that nations and countries are fundamentally good, but sometimes they go bad. And so the history of the nation is the history of God's revelation on earth. Good leaders, and by good I mean leaders that agree with whatever principles the Christians at the time agree with, are seen as ones who have been appointed to make their nation a light to the world or city on a hill bad leaders i.e leaders that don't agree with whatever given principles christians at the time believe in are seen as a punishment to the nation or a discipline meant to whip that nation back into shape so that once again it can take its rightful position top of the heap of history The ultimate revelation of God. Underlying this approach is a view of history that is rarely understood or articulated by people who hold to the thesis that God appoints leaders. But in any case, this view of history is that the development of nations is the revelation of God, that history itself is moving towards an apex of God's self revelation. There are two forms that this can take. One is that God is micromanaging history in order to reveal himself more and more to the world, and the other view is that history itself is the controlling power and that God is subject to history's development. Both of these can be traced back to Hegel, who was the Prussian philosopher in the 1700s, who writes how in man's highest civilized development, God is most revealed. It's a view of history that sees different civilizations and nations as living in some sort of hierarchy, that the more civilized a nation is, or the more successful it is, the closer to God's self-revelation it is. So you either see God as doing this on purpose, bringing nations to a point, or you see the development of human civilization itself as an aspect of God's own revelation, But in either case, this is a patriotic nationalist view of history, which sees the rise and fall of nations as somehow containing truth. The appointment of leaders, then, is part of the way of safeguarding this truth, of guiding this thing called the nation through the rocky shoals of history towards its great destiny and end. Now it's worth pointing out that every Christian empire or nation in history has had something like this in the story that it tells itself about itself. Hegel was only making explicit something that has been in the water for a long time and Americans did not invent Christian nationalism even though they are perhaps perfecting it right now. But the common thread that's linking The Roman Christianized Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Holy Roman Empire of the European West, the Victorian Empire that stretched across the globe, the American expression of manifest destiny. The thread that links all of these Christianized nationalisms is that they saw their nation has been chosen by God for a purpose, and that their leaders have been raised up and placed in positions of power in order to get the nation back on track or to bring it into its fulfillment. In the nation's highest development, God's will is most plainly manifest. The problem, of course, is that this isn't what the New Testament says at all. The final and best word of god is not to be found in the rise of one nation or empire jesus is the word of god the incarnation is the point around which all of history rotates it isn't a linear line of development or regression it's a circle always coming back to the incarnation the earliest christians didn't look to their nations or the development of their countries or empires or tribes or ethnicities as vehicles for truth. They didn't see the leaders of these things as guardians of a divine spark or revelation of God. What they saw was a series of organized rebellions against King Jesus. And the word that the earliest Christians used to describe this kind of activity is the same word they got from the book of Genesis and the Hebrew scriptures. Babylon. Babylon is the word that the Bible uses to describe empires and nations which set themselves up against the way of the Lord. And in the book of Revelation, the word Babylon now means Rome, but it also means any human group any nation and tribe which is acting in the way that nations and tribes always act the book of revelation explicitly links this activity to markets and wealth and trading and organized military violence and it calls this thing babylon what is more those who participate in these activities are seen as taking the mark of the beast Babylon and the beast are empires and nations which are rivals to the way of the Lord. And the ultimate end for these things, for the leaders of the different nations, is not that they are affirmed in their nationhood. It's not that the princes and the kings are given a rubber stamp of approval because they have now led history to this great point where every nation reveals something true about God instead the christian imagination for the end of nations was that every ruler would throw their crowns at the feet of king jesus that sovereignty would be given over to the lord not that every nation would retain its own sovereignty and identity the ultimate end for nations and empires in the book in the bible in the book of revelation is that they are dissolved that they give up their sovereignty that they don't clutch tightly to what is rightfully theirs, even when it's rightfully theirs. And this dissolution of the nation is seen as its healing. This is the ultimate imagination of the earliest Christians towards these things. It is far from a patriotic imagination. But the earliest Christians, of course, didn't see themselves as violently bringing about the end to these nations. They didn't see them as good they saw them as part of the evil world which was being redeemed and made whole again, but they didn't see their role in this world as fighting these nations, or the kings. This is where things like Romans 13 become very important, or the idea of submission to the ruling authorities, for example in First Peter and elsewhere. This is where the early Christians saw themselves as living in this world, which right now was being governed by the ruler of this age. The rule of this age associated with Satan, associated with these powers, unseen forces which influence our lives, rulers and authorities, thrones, princes and the like. There's a demonic or satanic element to the rule of government and kings and kingdoms. And the early Christian imagination towards these things was to let them, in a sense, deal with themselves. Let the dead bury their own dead. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That God gives men over to their own desires and that that itself is the punishment. Often the punishment of God or the wrath of God is that humans get what they want. They live with the sin that they chose. There's a lot of this happening in the New Testament. I guess it's like thinking of the, the, the kingdoms or the organizations of humans are going to come to a bad end because they are fundamentally unjust. They are fundamentally based on rebellion, organized selfishness, pride, greed, violence, exploitation, all that stuff. And these things are going to work themselves out. You're going to implode you're going to come to a bad end eventually. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And the Christian imagination in the New Testament is to organize themselves around the way of Jesus. And they saw that the way of Jesus was not just a thing you did to get to heaven when you die, but a way that you lived right now as an alternative to the forms of life that were on offer in the here and now the way of jesus the following the way of king jesus was itself to offer some sort of alternative to the beastish babylonish ways of the world around them don't be like the gentiles who lord their power over others says jesus and again and again this is the attitude that we see when it comes to how to deal with evil Early Christians didn't actually think that they were supposed to take up arms or fight the evil empires and nations they saw around them, even though they thought that in some way all nations were in some aspect part of the sphere of corruption and evil. But they didn't see themselves as fighting it, which is why Paul says in Romans 12, don't take up arms. And in Romans 13, don't be part of the arms dealing and arms wielding activities. This is something that is going to happen because this is the way the world is being run when it's under the prince of this age. And God's appointment of these people, of Caesar and kings and presidents and the like, is not seen by the New Testament as God choosing his man for this such a time as this. Instead, we should imagine, along with the New Testament, more like God makes it rain On the just and the unjust alike. The kingdom of heaven is like wheat sown in a field of weeds. And if you try and pull up the weeds, you're going to trample the wheat. So instead they both grow for a time together. All this noisy business of nation building and development of countries and patriotism and military might, wars, rumors of wars, markets, trading exploration slavery all the things that come with the story of all of our nations no exception these are all seen as happening in a field of time that is being allowed to persist at the mercy of god but this is not the final end the development of the nations is not portrayed as the final end of history the point of history or even as a good thing It's portrayed in the New Testament imagination as something that the Lord is suffering or allowing to happen in his mercy until such time as the sons of God will be revealed. All creation is waiting in eager expectation for the co-leaders, the heirs of God, to be revealed and to take their rightful place. And this is part of the vision of the kingdom or part of the vision of the followers of Jesus that they were trying to live in a way that was alternative to all that noisy nationhood stuff. And they don't know when it will end, but they do think it will. And they don't think it's their job to make the nations come to their sticky end. They think that nations will just inevitably collapse under their own weight. Nations and leaders are going to get what they wanted and that will be their own punishment. And that's not the way of the follower of Jesus. The ways of the followers of Jesus is not to make their nations as great as they can be. The followers of Jesus in the New Testament treat their nations with a sort of benign indifference, which I've mentioned many times before, a benign indifference to these things. They live in this world. They have to do with it. So they get on with the daily life of peaceful coexistence with others. They do not set themselves in armed opposition against these things, but they also think that these things will eventually fall away and perish. They think that Caesar will throw his crown at the feet of Jesus because Caesar is part of a principality which has set itself up against the rule of the Lord. And much like Satan is allowed to do his thing for a time, for reasons that are not quite known or apparent to followers of Jesus, the end of Satan is that he falls like lightning. He is cast down. He is no longer the prince or the ruler of this age. And for Jesus and his people, they saw themselves as enacting or living out right now what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That where they acted or where they organized themselves around Jesus, the king, the word, the embodiment of God, where they saw themselves acting in that name, they saw something of the kingdom or the rule of God happening. And outside of that name was the rule of man, which is also known as the rule of Satan. This is part of the element that we need to pay attention to. In the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the New Testament, the rule of god or the, the, the will of God is often seen or used as a way to describe how we might today think of acts of nature. You know how in the insurance documents you can have a if you if you're flooded or if there's an earthquake, they call it an act of God. That's a little bit how this is happening in the Bible. And it's not that everything that happens is an is a direct intentional manipulation of space and time by god it's that sometimes the will of god is used in the bible the same way we might think about as an act of nature or a force of nature that god has is presiding over this creation but not everything that happens in creation is as a result of his direct intention or direct will and this is because freedom is part of the world freedom is baked into the universe that when people choose something they really did choose it and if they want to if if choosing god or choosing to the way of god is an option then choosing the way of not god is also an option it's a real option this is not going to be resolved in this podcast but this is the headline that freedom is real And free choice is real. And that God seems to be the one who is working as a force of redemption in this broken world. Wooing and slowly knitting back together things that have been destroyed or perverted. So God is a redeeming God, but not the micromanaging God. Not the domination, domineering God. You can say no to God and in fact people say no to God all the time and he lets them and then when they suffer the consequences or the implications of living a life that is against the grain of creation it looks like punishment it looks like destruction it looks like the wrath of God but they are getting what they wanted. I think this is a good way of thinking about this phrase that God appoints a leader or raises up a leader. I don't think it's a micromanaging, overpowering intervention, but it might be the people are getting what the people wanted. And in some ways you can say that is God's will, but that's not the same as saying that was God's want. You can say no to God and you will get the leader that you ask for. And that can be its own punishment. All leaders of all nations are part of an organized system of rebellion against the way of Jesus. There is no exception to this rule. And so all leaders and all nations will be part of the wrath of God. They are part of the system that Romans 13 describes, of the sword-wielding, vengeance-seeking, wrath-dealing business of violence begetting violence. This is what nations are like. To talk about them is not to talk about something great that fell from heaven fully formed. It's to talk about the history of humans saying no to God in increasing complex, trenchant, and developed ways. And then when they add the name of God and the language of Jesus onto that, it becomes blasphemous. The history of the development of a country or the rise of a nation is not the history of the increasing revelation of God's goodness on the earth. Instead, it's the story of what happens when people say no to God and get what they ask for. And the story of how God deals with nations is not the story of divine punishment and reward to try and make the nation as great as it can be. It's the story of redemption, of an alternative form of life which is nestled amongst the nations. It's in the world but not of the world. It is held out to people with an invitation to come and join the movement of the way of Jesus, the word of God, the final revelation. That's the will of God that he desires that all shall be saved, and that through the kindness of God humans are led to repentance, to change their hearts, their minds and their forms of life and come into new hearts new minds and new forms of life I look forward to following this line of thought in the next episode of Followers of the Way but until then go well and Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I'm very happy to welcome back to the tent Sean McCoy and Christopher Marchand, my two good friends who we talk about theology and politics and social imagination and it's the kind of thing we'd probably want to talk about this stuff even if we weren't being recorded which is such a joy and a pleasure to have them here again and Chris we have just been talking about does God appoint leaders and the book of revelation and nations and the fall of nations and the healing of nations also so many things and I can see that you are you want to talk, you want to ask me something, or you want to talk about what? What was on your mind when I was talking about all that stuff?
2: So what's really interesting about your topic is that here in America, we are in the midst of a regime change, or at least we think we okay. are. You know, as we record, uh, we'll see what happens here. Uh, you know, the, the official inauguration yeah. day is January 20th. Uh, but but let, let's just say that we are, you know, you know I, yeah. I, I believe that we are. And with many, many people... When Joe Biden became elected president, there was just such a sense of relief. And, and, right. and I think what I saw in that, whether they were Christians or not, uh, followers of Christ or not, there was a sense of, oh, now finally God's work can be done, God's will could be done. Oh, right. And uh right. and so I think in your in what you talked about there's a, a chance to always be in a place of discernment, of going, well, okay, I think my party may have won or such and such or whatever it is, but to just always take a step back. And uh, what I want to bring up, hmm. what I want to bring up is a meme that I saw that won't let me go. And, uh, ah. and it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's, you know how people do. It's, it's actually a meme that someone put words over a clip from The Simpsons. And it's okay. Bart Simpson. And he's looking dejected. He's looking dejected on the side of the road, and he says, finally, no more kids in cages. And so <laughs> what it's expressing is, okay, we, the right yeah. people are now in power. Biden's yeah. president. Finally, we're going to have some justice. And then Homer comes right. up to and he goes, yeah. no more media coverage of kids in cages. Yeah, right. And uh and I yeah. and I just thought it yeah, was so yeah. brilliant. It's like a gut punch. It's a yeah. gut punch. Yeah. And so yeah. I think there, there's something to this meme. The meme is the word of the Lord. Our last episode was about prophecy. <laughs> this was a prophetic word to me. In the sense of saying, our job isn't to just sit back and be relieved now. <laughs> like uh, uh and I, and again, I I don't know how our yeah. listeners are might might yeah. be divided on this issue, but I just see a challenge there that nope there's still going to be kids in cages and the church's job, the followers of yeah. Christ's job is to stand with them and to bring light to that. You know, that exactly. That's what I was thinking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the, the dissolving of the nation as it's healing? Ooh. Like, what do you think about that in, the, in terms of regime change? I struggle with that because I want that,
2: but I fear for okay. my kids. Like, okay, fine, dissolve the nation. Right. Are my kids going to be able to eat? <laughs> that's what I, that's right. Yeah. The anarchist in me is like, fine. Yeah. Let's, let's let it dissolve, let it burn, whatever. We'll see what happens. But man, I got kids. I want, I want, but is it,
1: it, it's not the dissolving of peaceful relations between humans, it's the, the dissolving of that addiction to sovereignty or whatever that we see in leaders like when when the when the rulers hand their crown at at jesus's feet they're basically saying i can't solve my people's problems Mm. i can't do it it's not the buck doesn't stop with me Mm. right so weirdly like when we when we all have a collective sigh of relief that biden is president we're not casting our crowns at jesus's Mm. feet we're putting them all at joe biden's feet right so the dissolution of that kind of myth that once the nation has, once the right person is in charge with the right powers, then all will be well, that's, the, that's what needs dissolving, right? Because the lie is that we constantly think that, we constantly think if only the right person was in charge and that's what's hurting our children, right? Like that's why our nations are so bad. <laughs> it's hard to know what stake we have in any election i'll be honest we need to talk with somebody about not voting again because <laughs> i totally understand that not voting is could be seen as such a privileged position and it comes from complete utter like white privilege i can understand that and at the same time i can also understand why a follower of jesus might just say i want to have nothing to do with any of your noisy elections and things I, yeah I don't know. Do you think that America would dissolve if the followers of Jesus refused to, to support Republicans or Democrats?
2: Oh, oh I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer to that. It's a fascinating question. <laughs> I, I, I think there's been several gut punches today in this, you know, what we've talked about so far. That's another gut punch. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't know enough. I, I don't know. It, it all goes back to the local question for me. What am I called to do yeah. in my city? How can I be faithful here?
1: Right, which is another form of dissolving the nation. So, the healing of right, the healing of politics is the dissolution of the nation, and by that we would mean something like William Kavanaugh, who's this p- political theologian who I've talked about before. I mean, I'm actually indebted to this guy for giving even using the the language of cultural imagination or political imaginations from Kavanaugh. But and he'll talk about this the like, idea that that. The lie is that it's the nation that, that is the, ho- the right home for human relationships. And he's like, humans have survived really well for a lot longer than there's like this nation state is a relatively recent vehicle for human society. It's not the only f- form there is. And-, and it's not even a very good one. Like it's not actually that good. Look at, look at the world we're in right now. Like it isn't you bringing about great forms of human relationships anyway. To just wrest the crown away from the nation state and put it back into things like local communities or to spend a little bit more attention to the church or to the guilds or to (laughs) the boy scouts (laughs) or the mother's unions or whatever other local communities you have uh that's not that doesn't mean utter violent chaos in the streets it might mean less chaos in the streets actually like the more you, the more that you are obsessed with the nation uh, solving all your problems, probably the more dislocated you're going to be from your own neighborhoods. And the less checked into your local environment you, you, you might be because you're expecting London or Washington or Beijing to do it for you. Yeah. That's where I wonder, again, I would say to you, like, maybe you just focusing on your local church and your parish, that might be that also might be the dissolution of the nation in, one, in some way. Yeah. I don't know. Sean, what do you think about all this?
0: Well, this subject definitely is one that gets me a little bit fired up and I'm going to try to stay some sort of narrow pathway because there's so many elements, so many tangents that you could take to this. I mean, my first some of my first reactions are uh, this: the internal question of why does God care who's president of the United States? Why does God care yeah. uh, who's president of a, of a business or who's, who's doing it? Like, what does this have to do like I, I just don't think God's up there going, "Oh my gosh, I just hope that Biden wins too, or that Trump wins, or either way, or that it, it has <laughs> God's to crossing too. his fingers, <laughs> right? Like, oh, if only, right? If only we could, you know, thank, thank, thank I God, know. thank God for, I mean, so the whole it's thing becomes absurd, a bit of, isn't it? Right, yeah. it becomes a bit of a paradox, and it, it really speaks. And then then you have to ask, well, why is that even part of our mantra? Like, why do we even like what 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 is the association? And I think right. it, it comes down to this idea that that it is righteousness and it's, it's the correct way. And then there's also benefit. And I think, I think Chris alluded to it. There's an element that we have to recognize and that is one of, of a fear of, of concern around ourselves and around others and around, well, we, I want this life that I have and I want these things to be okay. I want there to be comfort. I want to, I want to understand and have control. And I want to be able to, to mm. basically do and count on these things. And so by doing so, if somebody's doing that, and if I can, if they're in a position of authority, we can get our, so if, if, they've, if they've accomplished something that allows for that, you start to bring in God into this, like it's God ordained. If you go back and look at the history of, I mean, just look at the his, history of aristocracy, right? The whole idea was, well, God blessed you in the battle. You won, you're the winning team. So ergo, you know, you have some sort of connection with the divine because you've benefited. Or right. we have our own right. modern day aristocracy around entrepreneurs and business and athletes. And well, if you've made a million dollars or if you've been successful, somehow we need to mimic this and that this is what's going to bring us all into the fold. And somehow it's God ordained because it's, it brings all this, all these other stuff. And it does, it takes away these struggles and it takes away these issues. And I think to the point of the imagination is the juxtaposition for me to look over at, at the new, at at the gospel and say, well, I can't find, I can't find that anywhere. (laughs) like I can't find that lining up. If that's the case, then we have, you know, we have the, you know, the spirit incarnate in human form and it and it's murdered for merely speaking out against the the powers that be. How how does those how do you reconcile those things? How do you reconcile this idea that because if that was the case, he should have been born, you know, mega popular and taken over the world and, you know, been yeah. financially successful and, you know, from a from a you know from a, a, a cultural standpoint, national standpoint, he should have, he should have just made the earth into one big nation anyway and put Alexander the Great and the rest of the people to shame in terms of conquering and Genghis Khan and the like. But that isn't what happened, and so how in the world can I sit there and? But it's easy to get caught up in that and think, well, that's you know they're appointed. You know, it's it's we, we even do it. I thought that in God we trust or God bless America. It's all is it's it's this subtle belief that somehow there's an there's an anointing of one and not an anointing of another.
1: Bonhoeffer talked about this as the worship Almighty God is heresy and blasphemy. God Almighty is the highest form of worship. So what's the difference? And he and he's living in uh, Nazi Germany. And he's saying the Nazis worship the almighty God. Because what they say is we're going to look around and we're going to worship Almighty, whatever is most powerful, we're going to call that God. So they define God by power. Right. And then he said, so he said, that's actually demonic, <laughs> look around and go who's top of the pile right now who's most powerful right now which nation is the most successful in history right now oh that must be god's favor on them almighty god and then he says but if you say i worship god almighty then you're defining power based on god's self-revelation and how did god reveal himself as jesus so if you define power as what jesus did you're not going to look like any of our nation, national heroes <laughs> you're not going to look like a, a single nation or triumphant king or businessman or priest even right so it, this idea is like human society has just made something and then called that god which is what we see all the time whenever we see somebody win some sort of powerful election we always say god's favor is on them it's like no (laughs) that was just a demonic system that threw up yet another demonic
0: actor right so so the, the two of you with your theological backgrounds and obviously you're very astute at this kind of stuff help help me understand something that i've been struggling with in relation to this and that is if god was interested in us worshiping uh, the Almighty, you know this. This amazing, in in a sense, this Almighty God. To flip it a little bit, but let's say it's true, and God could smite and could do and can and would. God created all this, could destroy all this with 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 what a thought. And it's this omnipotent thing. If the whole point of our creation was just to worship God and just tell all that, hey, you already know it, but we're here just to tell you how amazing you are. What are we waiting on? And why? What is this whole? What is this segue over to earth and living this life? If it's only to get to a certain point to get to him, just to say, Hey, you already know you're amazing, but you just created me to tell you that.
1: But even, but Jesus even defines worship I and mean, worship that is acceptable to God is this, I mean, in the book of James, that you take care of the widow and the orphan, or Jesus talks about how you love God. If you do what I command, which is lay down your life for your friends. So like, it's not hidden. What, what true worship looks like through a Jesus shaped lens it's not a secret and it looks like the opposite of dominating your power over others. Do not be like the Gentiles who lord their power over others. And so right. like the worship of God doesn't, isn't Sean Foyt leading some sort of worship protest against coronavirus lockdown and calling it a pro a freedom protest. That's not worship of God. And in fact, that kind of activity is distinctly and explicitly described in the Bible as something obnoxious to God. He hates it. In the Book of Abraham, or we could right? go to a mall and
0: sing. we we could we could do the choir thing at the mall in California. We could do that. I don't know if right you that story.
1: Like I hate that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you are just doing the opposite. All you're gathering yourselves together to dominate your power over a space. All you're doing is you are using your collective power to dominate the agenda and the space of other people around you, and you're running roughshod over their wants and needs. It's like I hate that. Says God. Um, True worship is this, that you lay down your life for your friends. Right? I mean, it, that's just so obvious. It's so the opposite of anything that these anti-mask people are doing or that these worship as protest to, to our freedom kind of people. Like, it's just so opposite that it's that it just requires the only way you can describe what's happening here is if you realize, oh, yeah, they, what they are doing is they are identifying the American way or whatever it is and calling that God that's how they can do this in good conscience because they've been given a religion which essentially just looks at our culture right now is the one that's brought us freedom that's the most successful culture right now therefore god likes it therefore that this is our worship to god is to be the best freedom loving americans we can be and that's what you get that's what happens all the time and so Uh, We're just trying to to think differently. Like uh, maybe your maybe your the politics of praise is to do what Jesus said. (laughs) Maybe that's your praise, to just look a little bit more like Jesus. But I I think that's where worship culture and politics meet. Actually, it's where you see that so often the uh, how often we're seeing the patriotism explicitly being linked to Christian worship. Like it's not even it's not even like critics like me just saying oh you guys are actually worshiping your flag it's like the people who want who are they want you to see that how patriotic they are they want you to connect their flag with their christian worship it's so explicit that what they're doing is they are worshiping almighty god not god almighty they're not defining god based on jesus they're defining god based on the most powerful human structure that they can find and you just see it happen over
0: and over and over again, and I think the ultimate way that we respond to that, I think, where is is in the in the, in the true nature of, the, of of what Jesus teaches us, and that is to love them. I mean, that that is, and I mean that sounds trite, and it always comes up, but what I mean by that is, it's really I think it's really can you can you sit in that shalom? Can you sit in that tension between between having that person that's I mean I saw one yesterday. A guy ran. A guy drove by uh, on the highway with probably what had to have been a twelve or fourteen foot flag, like by three or four meters. I mean, and all it said in big white letters was was "fuck Trump" or I'm sorry "fuck Biden." Right, yeah. It's a response because there was a there was a truck here in Fort Bend County that did the same thing to Trump when he got elected, and this person was just driving around doing that. And it's like, so you can get all self righteous and all oh, this person's a jerk, and I can't believe my kids could read that and they're young, know, or you know, or we or we put out our hand, welcome to welcome them to the table, and try to walk him through it i think part of the thing that
1: i'm noticing now and this is where it's very hard to chris is just shaking his head at the uh f-u-c-k <laughs> biden I'm
2: thinking about the effort it takes like that took a lot of time and those money are not cheap yeah they're not cheap i'm like thinking goodness me paint do get a van gogh flag of like one of yeah. his feet come on like what a waste of
1: time <laughs> i know i know we we invest it's not like we're like um quietly accidentally rebelling against the law of jesus mm. we are loudly with great enthusiasm and effort and money and resources and it's the people who uh, quite often the ones i'm concerned about are the ones who call themselves christians who are doing that and that's where i'm kind of more focused on but like our our rebellion against the way of jesus is not accidental it's mm. it's really deliberate like we are gritting our teeth and pushing against the headwinds <laughs> we're doing all we can to turn christianity into a movement that is opposed to jesus right and and you just see this all the time and so i i guess i'm just trying to what well i was going to say to sean as part of my issue is that i feel like we're supposed to love our enemies and i'm starting to notice that like notice how often people who call themselves in all good faith, they call themselves Christians are actually my enemies. And so I just have to aware of that. I just have to be aware that. Like actually the people who probably want my life to end and probably don't wish me and my people. Well, they probably are people who call themselves Christians with all sincerity. If I'm honest. And, And in lots of ways, they're as much my enemy as ISIS is or something like that. Like they, they do actually bear me as much malice as somebody like that, as you might expect a typical enemy. So how do I love those people? But we live in a world in which, Oh, but they call themselves Christians. So they're your brother in Christ. Like they're not though. Are they not really? And so this is where I'm starting to realize, all right, I do have to live. I have way more enemies than I thought I did. It's just that a lot of them call themselves Christians. Um, so now I'm trying to live in that world and figure out what to do about that. <laughs> but I agree. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to love them. Of course I am. And for me, that might mean not trying not to eradicate them or trying not to dismiss their personhood.
0: Well, I, I do. I do want to acquiesce that. You know, that, that we hear that all the time, and I and I even have gotten to the point where I, I know that's the answer, but I hate saying it sometimes in terms. Yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. Because it creates this like, oh well, here's this storybook. You keep saying that but I, I don't know what the heck that means i haven't even actually seen it work you know it's what, like to love your enemies you mean right it's this fairy yeah, tale yeah. thing love our enemies yeah, of and we're, course you know, we're, we're firebombing sulaimani and arrest these people you know like it's like it's not happening and even on the streets you go to a, a protest or something like that you go to a political approach or even if go to a school board meeting that's local yeah. and yet people want happen. to like tear each other's throats out or on apps you know neighborhood apps here and i mean they're just you know just all over each other and it, so I, i'm not i'm not and that's why i said i don't want to be just say it like it isn't like it's easy no but it's so
1: rare it's so rare which is why kierkegaard said christendom has done away with christianity it does not exist followers of jesus do not exist (laughs) and we we hear that as if he's exaggerating to prove a point they're like well what if he is true what if he's right
0: (laughs) well well i would say that 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 paradox that crucible you're talking about that you're trying how do you rectify all these things and even even as a as a follower of the way like as i would consider myself the 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 that difficulty now do i do with this looking at the way that i live and where i live and how i live and what's expected not just of me but then i have a family and friends like this is my and these are all those people and i'm like in my head raging like why it seems to be counter to what i'm doing and it's 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 very very difficult because i'm not even those people i don't i mean these are people that i know and i know that i have i'm different but
1: i think so what i'm thinking and maybe we'll come into land to bring it full circle is that it's because I think being a follower of Jesus is not systematic. It's not structural. So the reason why I have still some hope, uh, which I admit dwindles, uh, it rises and falls. If you put it on a graph, it would, it would go up and down. But the reason why I have some hope and I'm still doing this kind of stuff is that Christianity is rubbish. Like it's really bad. It's an utter failure. The religion of Christianity The institutional, the inherited traditions and structure and apparatus that we've invented is bad at instilling uh, Jesus way of imagination in people. But it does happen on an individual small basis. It does happen in various pockets here and there. You do find people who lay down their life for their friends. You do find people who actually love their enemies, who are actually graceful, who are actually kind, and gentle there's way way less of them than people who call themselves christian but there are followers of jesus out there and but it's not systematic you can't capture it and institutionalize it it happens every generation it has to happen afresh with every generation right which is why i have some hope that it's probably always been that way and as soon as followers of jesus start to codify themselves and say oh well we've we've created a structure and now the structure will we'll love our enemies for us well that's when it all goes to shit um and we're just i think we're just experiencing that and i don't think there's ever been a a institutional generation or christianity an institutional christianity that hasn't been like this and there's it's always lost the plot and there's always needed individuals to be renewed like that cliche god doesn't have grandkids (laughs) he only has children right you can't be born a christian you have to yeah. something has to happen for you as a person you have to own it for yourself you can't just rely on your parents inherited religion
0: this is going to sound a little bit egotistical and it's, it's not i'm not trying to still promote my my old podcast because it's on hiatus but i will say that maybe the challenge should be internal and say when was the last time i sat down and actually talked to somebody that was different right than myself exactly. when's the last time i, I talked to an atheist or I, I listened to somebody who is uh, African American and from from a different socioeconomic status. I mean, when was the last time I spoke to somebody who's a different political party, and not and not the talking head stuff we see? And every time I do, and there's some and whether it was in my old podcast or even in my current around the oil and gas industry, I've talked to people because I'm I'm doing this podcast around the oil and gas industry as far as a pro podcast in a sense, and I but I've talked to a lot of people in the. Renewables world and stuff like that, and in in this idea, there's supposed to be this dichotomy, like enemies. It's either got to be, you know, either you love wind and solar and you hate oil and gas, or vice versa. And once you get past all the noisy rhetoric at the top, you come to find out that everybody gets that it's everybody gets it underneath. If you, if you can get past the 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 facade that's that's printed out there and they recognize certain things if you can get to the human side of it and sit down with them and actually talk to them for a while yeah and to find out those those narratives are not quite as sharp as they appear to be yeah if
1: you, you, you break out of the seeing people as uh members of certain groups and you start to just see them as individuals and something changes or, or that's where you get a real connection and i think that's where the kingdom of god it's kind of more in that area than it is in the institutions right is is come to the table still accessible? Could people still hear that? Still sure go listen.
0: It's just static. There's no. And both you, both of these gentlemen were on there. Uh, Stephen and Chris actually have episodes. Yeah, that's how we met. Yeah, how we met. Yeah. And the uh, yeah, it's out. It's just static. It just hasn't gone anywhere. It's just not. Uh, there's no error. There's no new content. There's oh, over a hundred episodes that are sitting out there.
1: Yeah, it's a great achievement. I really do recommend anybody who likes tent theology to go and listen to Come to the Table. Or, or,
0: have, or have your own Come to the Table is what I would say. Go we'll find have our somebody own. that you. Go have your own out there at the, somewhere within six feet, or, at, or uh.
1: <laughs> yes, I'll have a socially distanced come to the table. Be very good. <laughs> uh, I'm going to leave us for now, and I'm going to let you get on with the uh, with the lives that you have to lead of work and family and church and all the things that we have to do. But thank you, Sean. Thank you, Chris, for coming into the tent, and uh, I really look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye. To further support the show, please
0: subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.